Good morning. And happy Sabbath. Good to be in the Lord's house. And uh, I know that I extend a warm welcome also to those who are watching online, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on Facebook, or whether they're going to listen to this on Living Word Radio at a future date. A warm welcome. We are grateful that you have joined us, and we are grateful to be here. Amen? Well, to begin with, uh, I want to say the sermon title uh, speaks for itself. Boulders of Blessings, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit as we go along here, okay? Um, two days ago, on November 11th, we remember those who sacrificed their lives so that we could have freedom to come here and worship, right? And as I reflected on this day of remembrance, a question came like a, like a bolt of lightning to my mind. And the question was this, Steve, what are you thankful for today? Now, the question took me off guard, and uh, it really did hit me like a ton of bricks. What am I thankful for? I realized that God was asking me this question. And I know why he was asking me this question. As we move through our message for today, it will become very clear my answer to this question, what am I thankful for? What I am thankful for today is not really what I was thankful for two months ago. And things have changed, as you know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence here in this sanctuary. And Lord, as we, as we contemplate your great love, I ask, Lord, that you will um, accept the words that are spoken through, through this vessel, not because of me, but only because of you. For you are the author and finisher of our faith. You are the king of the universe. And we ask, Father, that you will bless us, that you will be with us, that you will draw close to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So God created each one of you for a purpose. God not only created you for a purpose, but he also gave you the gifts and talents to fulfill the purpose that he has made for you. Are you, the question is, are you thankful he created you for a purpose? Are you thankful that he gave you gifts, that he gave you talents to fulfill his purpose in your life? And since God has a purpose for each one of us, we should be filled with joy. Now I had to contemplate that a little bit about joy. Christians especially should be the most joyful people in the world. All you have to do is look at Abraham. In Hebrews 11.10, Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. We don't just look at this world that we live in. 
we know there is a better world coming. Amen. There is a better world coming. Now let's look at the word joy for a second. The word joy appears 59 times in the New Testament. The first recording is when the angel Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. I bring you good tidings of what? Of great joy, which shall be to all people. And that's what we were talking a little bit about this morning about justification. Matthew records that when the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Exceeding great joy. The Christian faith promises joy. Pure joy. Not what people call happiness, but joy. Not health, not necessarily wealth, but joy. Not an easy ride and fun, but joy. So what is it? What is this joy? Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Full of glory. This joy is unspeakable and full of glory. The 70 that Jesus sent out into the villages returned with joy. They returned with joy because of the new authority that Jesus gave them to witness and to cast out demons and to heal. Later on, great joy came to the city of Samaria when Philip preached the gospel and healed many people. The Bible says there was great joy in that city. So what is that joy? Despite being persecuted and rejected, the disciples of Jesus were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost, or as we understand, the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says this. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, or it's not food and drink. It's not about that. But it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we have joy in the Holy Spirit? The word rejoice. Now, let's, we talked about the word joy. Now, let's talk about the word rejoice. The word rejoice is used 74 times in the New Testament. Now, I said that God promises us joy, but he doesn't promise us necessarily happiness. There's two different things here. What's the difference? Words only have the meaning that a person gives to them. So I am defining happiness as a positive emotion, a feeling that is pleasant and positive. We all have them. We have emotions, and we can be happy in those emotions. There's nothing wrong with that. Joy I am defining as more as a principle than a feeling. That when you may not be feeling happy, you can still be filled with joy. Amen? When you're not happy, the feeling of happiness, you can still be filled with joy. Joy is knowing that you are safe in God. That God is in charge. That all things work together, as Jane said, for good for those who love God. 
and that eventually all the suffering and evil in this world will be utterly and totally destroyed. The best way to describe joy is to look at the experience of all places, the cross. Now that sounds like a conflict in terms, doesn't it? Here we see the experience of Jesus as he suffered on the cross. Here at the cross we see an extremely and horrendously unpleasant experience. Here is how the Bible describes one aspect of the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed, or surrounded, about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, can you imagine that the word joy is used in the midst of degradation and humiliation and supposed defeat? Joy, that word joy is put there for a reason. Notice that Jesus was full of joy as he suffered on the cross. The principle of joy, not the feeling, not the emotion, the principle of joy as he suffered on the cross. He was full of joy in pain, in suffering, in agony. How is that possible? Now I know one thing. It's not humanly possible, is it? It can't be. Why was he full of joy? He was joyful because he knew there was a purpose to his pain. Purpose makes all the difference. His purpose was to save this world, and the only way to save it was through pain and death, knowing that his death would give opportunity for people to be saved. Isn't that amazing? To save you and to save me, that is amazing. Jesus knew that his death would also make the universe secure forever. Sin will never rise again. Never again would the universe know pain and suffering. You know why? Because there's enough pain and suffering here to last an eternity. Am I right? Am I wrong? James, when writing to Christians in the first century, challenged him with this thought. My brethren, and here we go again. Again, joy is mentioned. Count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now, this is why there's a difference between happiness, the feeling of happiness, and biblical joy. It's two different things. Or in other words, very other versions say, instead of diverse temptations, they say various trials. Now what does James mean 
by a trial. Most people think of trials as bad, as something to be avoided at all costs. You know, who really, truly wants to go through a trial, right? But that is not always the case. Next year, as an example, let's understand what a trial is. Just a, an illustration. Next year in China, the Olympic Games will be held. And uh, in order to complete, uh, compete in those games, athletes must go through trials. right? And uh, here trials do not mean something bad, but something that may be hard. These trials are intended to reveal who the best, who has the best chance of winning a gold medal. In other words, to sift out the best. That's what Olympic trials are for. To sift out the best. Those who have the best chance or the best opportunity to win the gold at the Olympic Games. Now, that's just an illustration. But God uses trials to sift us. And I know that now from experience. I have had many trials in my life. I could probably write a couple of books. But I understand now, even more so than before, God uses trials to sift me, to sift us. Okay? Trials come to take away anything that is not right with us. And again, how we approach the trial determines whether it is a joy or a hardship. Alan Merson, I don't know Alan Merson, but he wrote an article for National Geographic about beekeepers. Now, you may have heard this before. And uh, it's about beekeepers who raise and transport bees for a living. He told the story of Jeff and Christine Anderson and how their daughter overcame an allergy, allergy, a severe allergy, to bee stings. To build up her immunity, doctors administered a series of injections to Rachel, this, this daughter, over a four-month period. But in order to maintain immunity, she needed a shot or a bee sting every six weeks. So every six weeks, Rachel's parents would go outside and catch a bee. Then as Rachel recalls, Mom would take a hold of my arm and roll up my sleeve. And then my dad would take the bee, make the bee mad, and stick it on me, and count to ten before he took the stinger out. But it worked. It worked. Now when I accidentally, she goes on, now when I accidentally get stung, it barely swells. It barely hurts. Right? Now imagine how hard it must have been for the, the parents to know this was the only way to help their daughter live. In a world full of bees, a loving father must not shield his child from every sting. Right? Is that why God sometimes allows pain and trials into our lives? Not to hurt us, but to heal us. Not to make life more difficult, but to make life better. Because the closer you're drawn to him, life gets better. Right? No matter what you're facing. A very special Seventh-day Adventist lady, I won't name the person publicly, but I believe that person was listening to this message, they would know who they are. But a very special Seventh-day Adventist lady 
that I know uses these words to describe God's allowance of pain and trials in our lives. And it's our sermon title. She calls them boulders of blessings. Boulders of blessings. Let's just let that sink in. Ellen White had this to say about our text in James chapter 1 verse 2. Patience must have its perfect work or we cannot be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Troubles and afflictions are appointed unto us and shall we bear them all patiently or shall we make everything bitter by our complaining? I had to stop there when I read that. Because I got into the place where I was murmuring and complaining to God. She goes on, The gold is put into the furnace that the dross may be removed. Shall we then not be patient under the eye of the refiner? We must refuse to sink into a sad and disconsolate state of mind, but show calm trust in God. Counting it, and here it is, all joy when we are permitted to endure trials for Christ's sake. So when was the last time a trial came your way and you praised the Lord for that trial as a gift? Well, I know for me it wasn't yesterday. I was not in the habit of thanking God for a wonderful trial I was going through. I don't, I would say probably most here probably wasn't thanking God for a wonderful trial they were going through either. Maybe they were, I don't know. But for me, I, that's why I found myself murmuring and complaining to God. And I realized that by my murmuring and by my, my complaining, guess what I was doing? And it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks again. I was blaming God for the trial. I was blaming him. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to my wife? Why are you doing this to my family? I'm just being honest. I was murmuring and I was complaining. And guess what? At that moment, I had lost some faith in God. But, does God leave us in that state? No way. He loves us too much. He loves us too much. And that's why he asked me, he said to me, Steve, what are you thankful for today? In the midst of this. What are you thankful for? You know it's easy at Thanksgiving time. To focus on the good things. And thank God for them. But we need to remember. That the bad things. These trials. Can also be looked at in a positive way. If. We. Choose. It always comes down to that. Doesn't it? Do we choose Jesus or do we choose the world? Do we choose to blame Jesus for trials or do we thank him for the joy that this trial 
is going to sift us and change us and be brought into a closer relationship with Him. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. He does not say that all things are good, but he says that God will use the bad as well as the good to eventually bless us. Remember Rachel and the bee stings. Remember the sifting process. Trials are the means by which God sifts out those things that are part of us that are not good. It could be our pride. It could be our selfishness. It could be a gossiping spirit. It could be a critical spirit like I had towards God. Blaming God, a critical spirit. Complaining attitude and so on. It could be all those things. James continues in our scripture reading this morning, in his writing, to explain why trials are necessary. James chapter 1, 2 to 4. Let me read it again. My brethren, count it all. What's it say again? Joy. When ye fall into divers temptations or various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh what? Patience. So when I was murmuring and complaining against God, I was not having patience, was I? But let patience have her perfect work. Patience is very hard for us, isn't it? I know it is for me. Sometimes I just want it to happen now. <laughs> you know? Why do I, why must I wait? Why must I wait? Why can't it happen now? But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Wanting nothing. And I can, I don't want to add to the Bible, but I could say absolutely nothing. I, what do you want? What do, what do you want in this life? Well, that's a big question. It's a personal question. And one I had to ask myself, what do, what do I want in this life? You know, I can list, I could have a, it's like a scroll, you know, you can, you can roll it out and go right down the back of the room there. And I have a list of wants way down to the back of that room, touching Levi. But is that what God wants? God just wants my heart. That's all. And the rest, rest he does whatever he gives me I will count it what all joy right God wants all of us in heaven but he does not want us to be in heaven as we are here now that was that was a thought you know as we are here he, he doesn't want us in heaven as we are here Do you understand what I'm trying to say? You know? Let me explain. You would not want heaven to be a replica of this earth, would you? And God certainly doesn't. Because his cup is filled to the brim as we speak. It's filled to the brim. Now, I mentioned this before, but when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, You know, is Sodom and Gomorrah like worse than here? Think about it. 
Is Sodom and Gomorrah worse than this world is right now? I don't know. I know God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because their thoughts were evil continually and abase. But I don't know. When you look around you and around the world, I can't see this being any better. Can you? No. So, there will be no sin in heaven, no pain, no evil, no disappointments. So if we are to be different in heaven, that difference must begin here. Right? It has to begin here. Now, <laughs> the thing is, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I can be extremely stubborn. I don't know if you know that about me, but I can. I can be extremely stubborn when it comes to certain things. And, you know, we don't like change. Right? I'll give you a good example of why we don't like change. Or how, I get an example of not liking change. And we've heard it all the time, like many times over the years. So, you know, if we, say for example, we had a board meeting. And, um, and then we decided we were going to change the carpet. Okay, we, well, you know where I'm going with this, right? We we're going to change the carpet. And, uh, we had a, a business meeting and everyone, you know, went in and, and they decided on a certain color. And so we changed the car, we changed it to blue or something. I don't know, just saying. Changed the carpet to blue. And it was a board, it was a, it was a business decision. Do you think everyone, even though it was a business decision, do you think everyone's going to be happy with changing the carpet to blue? No. I would venture to say no. But why? Well, it could be because of, you know, looks or, you know, how it fits in with everything. I don't know. Or even changing curtains or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. But some people, it's difficult for change. Because they like things just the way they are. Why change something when it's okay? Right? It's just an example. But... Human beings are that way. When we like something, it's very difficult to change. You know, even if, <laughs> even if it's for the better. It could be for the better, I don't know. Change takes us out of our comfort zone. So sometimes God has to let trials come to us to force us out of our comfort zone to cause us to rethink who we are. To cause us to persevere in learning to love him more. And that's what James is talking about. James is basically saying in this passage that God wants us mature and complete. Now, what does it take for us to become mature Christians and complete Christians? Well, we are saved by grace, right? We're saved by His grace. We talked about that this morning. And yes, salvation is a gift from God from the death of Jesus, through the death of Jesus. Yes, there, yet there's nothing we can do to contribute to that gift. But at the same time, we have to change from being the people we are to become the people that God wants us to be. So I guess that's the question. Steve, what are you thankful for? And can I say, well, God, you know something? I'm thankful for change in my life. <laughs> Am I thankful for that? You know, we don't like change, and that is why God allows 
pain of a trial, which we may not understand here. So, every time I preach up front here, say moving forward, it's not necessarily going to be based on trials or afflictions or, you know, what I'm personally going through or my family's going to be personally going through. But it is a reflection of what God's will is for our lives. Okay? I'm not saying this trial of my wife, Stephanie, going through almost a year of chemo and then, you know, the ultimate, um, you know, news that there's nothing else they can do. I personally don't know why Stephanie is going through this. Am I saying that there's something wrong in her life and that's why she's going through this? No, I'm not saying that. But yet, it's still a trial. And right now, it's a trial for me and my family and, yes, this church, right? So why? Why? And that's the big question. Let me give a little illustration and then we'll come to a close. In the book, A View from the Zoo, Gary Richmond tells about the birth of a giraffe. Now, I don't know if any of you know about a birth of a giraffe, how that works. I mean, we know how birthing works, but, you know, what it looks like, you know. The first, thi the first things to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hooves and head. And a few minutes later, the plucky newborn giraffe is hurled forth, falls 10 feet, and lands on its back. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, if you were to have a, a pregnant mother and get up on a 10-foot ladder and, and let the baby fall to the ground, I don't think the outcome is going to be very good. You know, all joking aside, you know, that's... It's outrageous to even think that, right? But this is giraffes, right? So within seconds, he rolls to an upright position with his legs tucked under his body. And from this position, he considers the world for the first time and shakes himself. Now, gets the cob shakes the cobwebs off after that 10-foot fall. And the mother giraffe lowers her head long enough to take a quick look. And then she positions herself directly over the calf she waits for about a minute, and then she does the most unreasonable thing. She swings her long, pendulous leg outward and kicks her baby so that it is sent sprawling head over heels. Now, I had to question this because I said, okay, I'm going to go on uh, YouTube now, and I'm going to, you know, because I read this, right? I'm going to go on YouTube now and see if this is actually true. And yes, there is a video out there, a National Geographic video out there, that shows the whole thing. And, um, but when it doesn't get up, the violent process is repeated over and over again. Just keeps kicking the baby over and over again. The struggle to rise is momentous. And as the baby calf grows, calf grows tired, the mother kicks it again to stimulate its efforts. And finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. Now, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? It really does. And 
just to stop there, that's terrible enough. And then the mother giraffe does the most remarkable thing. She kicks it off its feet again. Why? She wants her baby to remember how it got up. <laughs> right? In the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up as quickly as possible to stay alive. To stay with the herd where there is safety, lions, hyenas, leopards, and wild hunting dogs all enjoy young giraffes. They're delicious, apparently. And they get it too if the mother didn't teach her calf to get up quickly and get on with it. Hard, cold reality. That's what that is. Right? What must have seemed very painful to the baby giraffe was actually for its good. And now, the painful trials that come to us are there for our good, if we will see them for what they are. Part of the training for heaven. Part of the change that God wants us to make so that we will not take to heaven the same habit patterns we have on this earth. And in reality, we're not going to take the same you know, whether we want to change or not, we're, we're not taking our bad habits to heaven anyway. Right? It's not, gonna, it's not gonna happen. It's not possible to take bad habits to heaven. Because there's no sin in heaven. Right? God never asked us to go through a trial that Jesus has not gone through, and that's what secured it for me. It stopped my whining and murmuring and complaining. The author of Hebrews opens this window about Jesus. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedient by the things which he suffers. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Obedience. It's not a word that's used a lot these days, is it? In the world, it's not about obedience. It's about obeying yourself, right? It's about what's good for me, right? What's good for me is good for me. And what's good for you is good for you. You don't need to change. I don't need to change because we're good. Because you're good in your sphere and I'm good in my sphere. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Seriously? In God's eyes, that's not God speaking. That's Satan speaking. That's Satan speaking. A different story here. While on earth, Jesus had to mature as a human being. He had to mature. He had to grow. And he matured in the same way that God calls us to mature. Through trials and sufferings. Did Jesus have trials when he grew up? Did Jesus suffer as he walked this earth? Oh, yes. Now, in Jesus' case, he was perfect. He never sinned. We know that. He had no impurities to weed out of his character, yet he still suffers. He still suffers. Even though he was pure, even though he was pure, he still suffered. If Jesus had to go through all this suffering, why should any of us feel that we should be exempted from this? It's for purification. It's for holiness. It's to be drawn closer to him. When we understand life this way, the way the way I do now, because I didn't always think this way, by that I mean through the eyes of Jesus, 
we can then live by this admonition from Paul. Rejoice evermore. No matter what. Rejoice evermore. So, after I spoke to you guys this morning, before the service, you know, and I realized that the only way I can stand up here and rejoice is because of Jesus. That's the only way. Otherwise, I would not be rejoicing. And it's not happiness. Let's make that clear. It's joy unspeakable. God's joy. And here is where we began. Closing. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, then you know that everything that happens is part of God's sifting. Do you believe the sifting process is going on here now? Do you believe it? The Bible talks about a sifting time. Do you believe that God's sifting is happening even now? I believe it. I believe it. Just think about it. Just think about it. It's going on. And it's happening. He loves you so much he wants to get rid of all the undesirable traits in your character. I'm not pinpointing anyone here. But we're all human beings. We're all born into sin. We all have undesirable traits, right? Let's be honest. I know I do. And when we accept this life, when we accept this, that we have undesirable traits in our life, then we, then that life becomes pure joy because we know why these things happen to us. And that's depending on the attitude we have on these trials. They can become a blessing rather than a curse. And that's why this Seventh-day Adventist lady, I don't know if she coined that phrase or if she just came to her in her affliction, but boulders of blessing, because that's what she meant. She faced many trials. At the end of the day, she could say, God blessed her in the midst through that trial. Whenever something unpleasant happens, please remember. Just please remember. And I forgot this. And even though I stood up here and preached many sermons, even though I have given many Bible studies, and even though I have, and over the years, I've made many mistakes, but I forgot this one thing in the midst of this trial. And don't miss it. That God is love. He loves you. He is refining you. He is redeeming you. He is saving you for his purpose. Whatever that purpose is. Ultimate purpose is to be with him. But there's a purpose he has for you here in the midst of trials. Remember, joy, unspeakable, principle, not emotion, not happiness, joy, unspeakable. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this joy principle is a deep thought, is a deep process. As human beings, 
at times we don't understand it. But when we read and understand from your word that you suffered the horrendous tortures of the cross and you counted it all joy, this is something we desire. Thank you, Father, for leading us at times through trials so that we can be refined, so that we can be sifted for your purpose. Help us be drawn closer to you and praise your name and not murmur and not complain in the midst of trials that we face, but count it as a blessing, as a blessing, because you have gone that pathway before us and because you are walking with us, with us through it. Thank you, Father, for this love, this type of love. This is not world love. This is your love, agape love. In Jesus' precious name, amen.